You are listening to the light of today with the powerful, life-changing Word of Christ that heals, delivers, transforms, and fills you with the Holy Spirit. Let God's truth burst forth into your heart. Stay tuned to the light of today with Chris Palmer. The things um, that I'm adding to my learning. And I think that when you get older, you now have more of a humility about the way we learn, and especially the way we treat the Word of God that I have a humility about other people's beliefs that maybe I didn't have 10 years ago, right? If you can give to me an intelligible uh, reason for why you believe something, then uh, I maybe can't agree with it, but at least I can respect it if it's intelligible. If atheists came in here right now, I don't believe at all what they say is true about uh, there not being a God. I don't think there's any way that you could possibly prove that there's not a God. And they would say there's no way that you could prove there is a God. But then again, I appeal to faith, and they say that faith is foolishness, but they just have much faith as we say that I have. So we're both people of faith, but they're the ones that are mocking faith. I accept it. But I can at least respect them if they're willing to allow things to be up for discussion. So um, I put these classes together so we can approach the Word of God using our minds, because I think as believers that we have to use our minds a lot. And I know that as believers, even from a personal standpoint, you get into trouble when you take your mind and you throw it out. Faith comes from the heart, absolutely, but we also there's also a part that our mind plays with our spirit, as I write about in my book. These services are, um, these classes are not at all like our Friday nights. Our Friday nights, we have a Friday night service, we're preaching, we got a band, we go before the Lord with worship, we're not all intellectual. Uh, we're going to be praying for healing and deliverance and miracles, signs and wonders, there's weeping and laughing, whatever. Um, but this service... I uh, had a vision from the Lord that God wanted to raise up the sharpest, um, humblest miracle workers in the city, wherever we're at. That's what God gave me a vision for Light of Today Ministries. And so we're a church. Um, we began functioning like a church at the beginning of 2015. And um, I want people that uh, at least are friends with Light of Today or people that come to Light of Today, people can say that person's from that church. Not because, number one, because they have the faith of God and they're able to pray for miracles. We were out praying for people uh, on Friday night, and some of those people are going to come check, check the church out. They called us this week. Um, and there was, Jordan talks about the miracles and healings that he saw out there. But at the same time, I want people to say, wow, they're pretty sharp. They're not a bunch of Kool-Aid drinkers. They don't just, we don't just put a pot of Kool-Aid in and they just believe everything we say. I want you to know what you believe and why you believe and be able to articulate it and know every argument around it. And we started this study um, a couple weeks ago, and I said that um, there's a difference between repeating the information as well as being enlightened. If you're informed, you're able to exercise your memory and say what perhaps the preacher said, but that doesn't prove that you understand or that all you have are enlightened. You're enlightened when you're able to give full, you know everything about it, and you're able to explain why it is so, why it is what it is, why A is A and why B is B and why C is C. And this class is not really telling you what to think, I'm telling you how to think. Does that sound good? Okay, so Friday night, Supernatural, will be there at 7.30, praying for the sick, so you're invited to that as well. And also there's a visitor's card if you've not filled out and give us your information. If you want to find out more about what we're doing, feel free to do that. <coughs> if you have your Bibles, go with me to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5. We talked about uh, the Old Testament uh, narrative, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Esther, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, which is Old Testament narrative. 
And um, then last week we talked about the poetic books, uh, Psalms, and different portions of Ruth. And today we're going to talk about a particular genre that's in the Word of God called wisdom. Someone say wisdom literature. Wisdom we're going to talk about how to read it. Um, and we're going to see that it perhaps is some of the most interesting stuff in the Bible. And maybe it can clear up some of the misnomers. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 5 says, Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Someone say, get wisdom. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So, right off the bat, we see that Solomon is talking about the reason why he's written the Proverbs. That is for us to apply wisdom in our everyday lives. How many of you have ever seen spiritual people not using any wisdom at all? Nothing. You know, um, it's not wisdom to stop taking your medicine if God hasn't told you to do that. It's not wisdom to say you're healed when you're not healed. As a matter of fact, before people testify in my services, um, I think it's wisdom for them to A, it be proven by a doctor they've been healed or them to actually see that they've been healed. You know, if a tumor disappears, if someone's got a tumor on their neck and the thing disappears, well, come testify. It's a proven fact. You know, we know this. But if you think you've been healed, you can't testify because you're going to lie to the people if you're not, right? It's not wisdom. So wisdom is a safeguard. And so you'll see that in the Word of God that there are a number of books designated to the sole purpose of us getting wisdom. They are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Songs. And much of the Hebrew Bible uh, has a category of wisdom so that we can learn how to acquire it and learn how to apply it in our lives, okay? But we'll see that when we're looking at wisdom, there can be some contradictory things in it that make us wonder how to interpret it. Let me give you an example. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 19. And you don't have to turn. Let me just read these and you write them down if you want to study them because we've got a lot to get through. This is what it says. A feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Money is the answer for everything. Now, if I got up to you on Sunday morning or whatever and says uh, on, on Friday, the Lord wants everyone to know money is the answer for everything. What do you think the congregation would say about that? <laughs> you got a problem? Get money. You got an issue? Go ahead. You, you need friends? Just show some money. Well, you'd automatically see right here there's a serious problem because that contradicts what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said, You lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you would have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So which is it? Is it what Jesus says or is it what Solomon says? And if you took Solomon and you study what he was saying in Ecclesiastes, was the, the word Ecclesiastes means the teacher, the preacher, you'd find that Solomon was actually saying this in context. This is what he meant. Money is the answer for everything in this life. So we have a problem. How do we figure this problem out? Is God bipolar? Did he decide in the Old Testament money is the answer for everything? In the New Testament, money is not the answer. I know preachers that preach this. This is why we need money in the gospel. That's why we're going to have prosperity because money is the answer for everything. But it's not. And then what they do is they take this passage of Scripture and they try to jam it into what Jesus is saying. And they try to say why Jesus' teaching doesn't contradict that. Yes, it does. So what's the answer? We'll find out how to approach problems like this in the Word of God. And you have to be sharp because people are going to ask. Someone told me a couple of days ago that this class is just for serious students of the Bible. I said, absolutely, this is for serious students. 
Many people sometimes, they want to come and hear a preacher preach and let the preacher tell you how to solve all the problems in their life. And uh, they just want someone to help with their problems. But there has to be more than that inside the church. There has to be a way that we learn how to become sharp. Because I can fix your problems, but we've got to be sharp, right? Amen. Right? All right, good. Okay, look at this verse. Then there's verses in Song of Songs. This particular verse is very offensive to Islamic people, Muslims. Because it's sexually explicit. Listen to this. You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I'll say, I'll climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like grape clusters, and the fragrance of your breath like apples. So, <laughs> this is an explicit passage. And actually, if we could take this in the 21st century, it's very explicit. So, when you're reading this, how do you apply this to your life? How does an everyday person, why does God have this in the Bible? We're going to see in just a second. So, we're going to go forward. We're going to see first off that there are special contexts in the wisdom books. And there is a mechanism and a certain approach that we should take. So that we can make sure we're, like we talked about before, squeezing all the juice out of this book that we can possibly get. And not misappropriate it into our lives. And the purpose of this is not to condemn it. It's to show you how to make it a blessing in your life. Right? Okay. So, write this down if you're taking notes. Wisdom is the soundness of understanding and the ability to make good decisions in life. It's not just having information. It's the ability to make good decisions. If you're not making good decisions, you're not wise. You may have all the information to make good decisions, but you need to have the ability. So this is what the wisdom books are dedicated for. It means knowing God's Word, then valuing God's Word, then acting on it. The fact that you're here tonight tells me you value God's word. People that have come several times tells me you value God's word enough to come out in the freezing cold, check it out, come back again and, and apply it to your life. As a matter of fact, these are the kind of things that have helped me to grow is classes like this. All right. But in the Old Testament, wisdom literature takes on a different tone. In the Old Testament narrative, and even in the Psalms and poetic books, you're hearing God speak to you with the tone of, Believe and obey. Very commanded. Believe and obey. This is the law. Believe it and obey it or be cursed. If you obey it, you'll be blessed. If you don't obey it, you'll be cursed. So believe it and obey. Then you have the prophets of God coming and telling the king of Jerusalem, Babylon's going to overtake you and you just better surrender and accept it. All right? But in, New Test in Old Testament wisdom literature, the tone becomes think and think again. Use your brain and think about. Stop and think for a second. Because the wisdom books want you to take your brain and expound it and think and be common sense approach to everything. Am I making sense? So you don't see a lot of theology laid out in the wisdom books. What you see is a lot, uh, you see the wisdom books assuming theology. But they stressed, I mean, they stressed the, the elements of the salvation story. And there's a theological basis that is assumed from the law. You have uh, Solomon, king of Israel, he knew the law, probably had it memorized backwards. But at the same time, you're seeing listen, look, think, and reflect. Do you know how many times in your life you could have solved a lot of problems before they started if you just would have stopped and thought about it, right? Yep. I'm surprised... And I don't say this to condemn it. I'm surprised how many women that are uh, 
and not just women, men. I mean, if, if women, same with the men, how many couples are in the third, 30, not even past 30, are divorced already? Tons. And I think about it and I have compassion because I know, I, I imagine how difficult it has to be to go through a divorce, especially when you're that young. But could it, I sometimes wonder, could it have been stopped if they would have just applied some wisdom in their life, right? And so the purpose of wisdom is that, number one, we develop character in our, in, in our lives. And I, and I imagine that when you um, get a good grasp on valuing the Proverbs, you'll begin to develop that character. But you'll see that the book of Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs is not a whole book of universal promises. As a matter of fact, the Proverbs we're going to see in just a second are not universal promises. One of the scriptures that we use a lot of times is train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's older, he will not depart. How many have heard that scripture before? But how many can honestly say, this, we're here to think tonight. I would preach that and preach that to people. To give, I would preach that as a promise you can hold on from God. But what do you, get to the, what do you say to the parent that has done everything? Has been a good example, has taken that kid to church, has brought that kid in, has done everything as far as, has laid in front of a train tracks for their kids, taught them about God, never cuss, smoke, beat them, but the kid turns out bad. You'd be surprised how many people have asked me that as a minister. Pastor Palmer, I've done everything for my kid. Well, it depends how you look at this verse. Is it a definite promise for God, or is it more of a general rule of thumb that sometimes has exceptions to it? You'll see that not all the Proverbs are written for the purpose of being a definite promise. Now, you can say to me, yes, it is a promise. All the promises of the Word of God are true, and I believe it, and therefore it settles it. Well, that's, you can take that approach, but what are you going to tell people? And my, I'm not determinist based on the fact that it's not promises. I'm determined on the fact that this is the writer's intent. We're going to see that in just a second. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Can you hold on to that as a promise? Yes, you can. But remember, the Holy Spirit has to be involved in that. You'd be surprised what the Holy Spirit can share with you. God can, as a parent, open up the heart and show you the heart of your child when he's three or four years old and prepare you for what's to come. It makes more sense when you approach God as a thinking, intelligent being who can look all the way down the road and see what's going to happen and prepare you for it. Amen. Okay. It's going to give you valuable insights into godly living, which taken to heart will develop godliness in your life. Okay. So there are different genres in the wisdom book. And... Um, there are different ways that we should approach it. Now, we talked about parallelism a couple weeks ago. All right, last week, actually. Parallelism is when you have two statements like this. Do you remember we talked about this? You have statement A and you have statement B. And statement A says the same thing as statement B, right? The way we looked at it is what is A and more so what is B. For instance, look at here. If misery could be weighed and my troubles put on scales. So the first statement says that misery can be weighed. The second statement says my troubles can be put on scales. So are there two different things being talked about here or just one idea? One idea, right? You'll see that Proverbs chapter 6 verse 20 to 35, you can write that down. All it is is parallelism. Same statement, same idea said in two different ways. You guys remember we talked about this? How many were reading this week and identified possibly some parallelism? Anybody? <laughs> Proverbs 6.20.
My son, obey your father's commandments and don't neglect your mother's instructions. Right? So, what most people do when they approach the Word of God is they'll maybe say, well, uh, the father gives commands, but the mother gives instructions. Right? That's not what this verse is saying. It's one idea. Obey your father's commands. Don't neglect your mother's instructions. What do you think the idea is in this? Obey your parents. There you go. See how easy now the Word of God is becoming now that we recognize this tool? Here, let's try another one. Keep their words in your heart. Tie them around your neck. What do you think this means? Don't forget them. Don't for- Look at this. This is, a, this is an English teacher right here. Though, so she knows what she's doing. Okay, let's try another one. Um, here's one with four. four. Verse number 23. For their command is a lamp and their instruction is a light. Their corrective discipline is the way of life. So what do you think this is saying right here? Can we sum it up with one possible statement? How about their instructions will lead to life? Pretty simple, right? But remember, this is all scales and measures being used. Okay, so let's not go over parallelism. Are you guys enjoying this so far? Okay, number two is a precept. This is a different thing that's used in Proverbs and wisdom literature. A precept. A precept is an instruction or behavior Connecting wisdom to the moral codes of the law. So basically, it's a simple instruction, can involve parallelism in it, but it connects back to the law. Um, maybe it's a paraphrase in, in some way, but it's proverbial in the sense that it's used like a proverb. Proverbs 3.27. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to help them. Pretty simple, right? It's a precept. It's moral in its nature. Proverbs 18, 18. This is what's known as a wise saying. Proverbs 18, 18. A wise saying is generalizations based upon experience. How many can think of a wise saying? Look before you leap. Look both ways before you cross the street. It's pretty wise. I mean, who is this universal? I mean, well, they don't have streets in Papua New Guinea, right? What if, what if this is Antarctica? You can't look both ways. Can we still apply it? Of course we can apply it. What's it mean? Just be cautious. Look both ways. Make sure you're watching your back, right? Okay, so a wise saying was be Proverbs 18, 18. Flipping a coin can end arguments. It settles disputes between powerful opponents. So this guy who Solomon's writing probably flipped a coin before. He says, hey, listen, who's going to ride in the front seat? I don't know. I want to ride in the front seat. I want to ride in the front seat. I should ride in the front seat. I got it. How about we flip a coin? Because by flipping this coin, it's neutral. It's just going to fall upon chance. Let's put it on chance, right? So what's this saying? Sometimes take a chance and let it resolve certain situations. So why saying? You guys here tonight? Then there is numerical Proverbs. Go to Proverbs chapter 30. I'm going to show you real quick. Can anybody uh, testify that they've been using some of the stuff we've been learning in class at all? Has anybody been using any of this stuff? Okay, good. One person. That's good. I'm glad. That's better than none. Can you close the door, Shar? Thanks. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 18. Here we go. There are three things that amaze me, no four things I don't understand. So, you can see right here what the he's trying to say. I'm perplexed. Parallelism again, right? Okay. How an eagle glides through the sky, how a snake slithers on a rock, how a ship navigates the ocean, how a man loves a woman. Pretty interesting now. Then look at number verse number 21. There are three things that make the earth tremble, no four that it cannot endure. This is interesting. A slave who becomes a king, an overbearing fool who prospers, a bitter woman who finally gets a husband, and a servant who supplants her mistress. (laughs) 
This is talking about bitterness. A bitter woman who finally gets a husband is going to take out all that anger that she's saved up at men for doing her wrong and making her feel bad and leaving, loving her and leaving her. And then she finally gets a husband who's going to make him pay every dollar, every debt, right? <laughs> or a slave who becomes a king, just mad. Everyone's keeping him down. Started from the bottom, now I'm here type attitude, right? You know, oh, everyone's been, all my haters have been putting me down. Now I'm going to become king and put down my haters. This is very interesting. And Solomon's sitting back saying, like, I don't understand this. If only they had some wisdom. Or a servant girl who supplants her mistress, like Cinderella. But thankfully Cinderella was kind and loving. She wasn't bitter, right? Okay. And then there's personification. Uh, we've talked about this. And then also there's satire and irony. Let me give you some satire now. This is offensive. You know, we saw how um, the Muslim community really doesn't respect satire. You know, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend your right to say it. You know, I think everybody should, people say, well, can you believe they're saying what they're saying about Jesus? I think they have the right to say what they want to say. Because if you threaten their right, you're going to threaten my right to be here tonight. So I think we should all just let the Lord figure it out and stop it. But, uh, you know, you saw in Paris, the Charlie Hebdo, Hebdo magazine uh, put out what it did about, you know, uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And they, they tried to, you know, to kill people. Um, well, satire is part of life. And the book of Proverbs uses it. You know, it's a satirical magazine. They draw big faces. You know, you see satire. Obama's got big ears. George Bush has got a giant nose, right? Well, the Proverbs use it. Look at what it says here. Um, Proverbs 11.22 A beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. <laughs> sure the feminists will love that one. A beautiful woman who lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. What's it saying? It's saying that you can take something so beautiful and mess it up and it becomes worthless. Who wants, you know, if I gave you a gold ring, I'd say, here's a gold ring, but it's been in a pig's snout. You just drop it like, wow, I don't want this. You know what I mean? Here's a candy bar, but it's been on the floor. Well, I don't want it then. That's what it's saying. It's a beautiful woman, but she's got no discretion. Well, then let her on her own. You become worthless without discretion. You see the satire and the irony in it? Okay. This is how God communicates to his people. So let's look at a quick couple of approaches. And then for our exercise tonight, we're going to get into Song of Solomon. And we're going to see what it's really trying to say. Going to get extra. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> it's going to, but it is going to be uh, adult. But uh, uh, since we have Cameron here, we'll make sure that it doesn't get too adult. Amen. Three abuses of wisdom. Number one. People often read these books in bits and pieces and fail to see they have an overall message. So, in other words, well, I read Proverbs chapter eleven twenty-two today, but what did you read around it? So, wisdom taken out of context can lose its meaning like anything in the Bible. One of the number one things that people love to take out of context, especially the gloom and doom people, the opposites of the word of faith, are the saying, it's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest. Well, you know, you take this out of context, you pull it out of the lyrical poem in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and what you're going to start believing now, I got my time. I can do whatever I want because when it's my time, it's my time. Doesn't the Bible say that there's a time to die? Well, I wonder when my time is. I wonder when to make it to 90. I wonder if maybe I'm going to live 120, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not what it's teaching. You'll see that this is a lyrical poem set in the context uh, explaining the elusive nature of human life. 
There's an even flow. You ever notice that? When it rains, it pours, right? You ever notice that sometimes you're not making any money, and the next day you're making a lot of money? And, you know, usually when you're making a lot of money, then all of a sudden you start getting a lot of friends. Maybe you got a job and a girlfriend at the same time. Maybe life just, there, there, this is a fact of matter. There are seasons. That's why when things are going well, don't get too high on your horse, because guess what? You might get knocked off. That's why when you're down and out, don't get too jealous of people that are up and down because your time is coming. And when your time does come, remember that one day your time will be up. So what is the cure for this? Humility. Graciousness, kindness, politeness, being kind to each other. When you're up, consider the people that are down. When you're down, rejoice over the people that are up. When you're alive, mourn for those that have died. And when you die, people will mourn when you die. <laughs> I don't know. I guess when you're dead, you're dead, right? <laughs> um, uh, and sometimes people also misunderstand the terms and categories that are used in wisdom literature. Let me give you an example. Stay away from fools for you won't find knowledge on their lips. Well, first of all, this verse can be really taken out of context. I mean, who is the fool we're talking about? What is a fool then? Is a fool a guy who's, you know, talking dumb? The fool guy that is a Cleveland Cavaliers fan, like LeBron James, you know? Is a fool somebody that, uh, you know, runs their mouth? Who is a fool? Well, if you understood what a fool meant, you'd see that it's a person that is very godless, does not consider God in their ways. So you can have a billion dollars but be a fool. I, there's one intellect that I really respect highly. And I love listening to him because he's very entertaining to listen to, but he's a complete atheist. He's a fool. And when he died, he's dead now, he uh, learned the truth. And I don't rejoice over that. I actually was wanting him to be saved. I felt that if anybody could have made an addition to the, Christ to the Christian cause, it would have been this man. I liked him as a person. I liked the fact that he uh, made people have to think. But there was other apologists that could counter him and make him really have to do his own thinking. Sad he didn't get saved. But at least, um, but that's a, that would be a fool for you. Number three, people often fail to understand what the book is all about. And because of that, they don't follow the, the line of argument. Let me give you an example, the book of Job. There's a lot of things that are said in the book of Job. Um... For instance, Job 15:20, the wicked writhe in pain throughout their lives. Years of trouble are stored up for the ruthless. Now, is this actually true? Job's friend says this to him. Eliphaz, I don't know how to pronounce that. He tells us to Job. Job is going through all this hardship. You know the book. He's going through this calamity and this difficulty. And his friend comes to console him. And his friend tells him, the wicked writhe in pain throughout their lives and years of trouble are stored up for the ruthless. Well, what's the indication? Job, you're not righteous. If you, if you were, this is how things work, and if you were good, God would treat you good, but you obviously have some hidden sin in your life because the wicked are going to live their lives in pain. Well, is that true? Do you know wicked people today that are out living it up? You know, the Super Bowl's in Arizona right now, and there are wicked people out there that have money that you can't even fathom what it's like having that much money. They have no problems that you have, and they are loving their life. They don't have sickness. They don't have disease. They got no problem at all. Hand them another drink. And you know what? They may die with a smile on their face. But that can't happen because the wicked... No, 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 no. This isn't true what he's saying. And you'll find out in Job chapter 50. 
in Job chapter 42, 48, where God starts answering Job, we're going to get to Job in just a second, that there's some things in life you're never going to understand, and that's just how life goes. And you're just going to have to be content being it that way. And in, in, in the book of Job, what was going on is God was chastising this man for saying, and we're going to see what his great sin, what not the sin really was, but the error was. And you want to know something? A lot of us make it. We're going to see in just a second. How many of you have ever had someone come to you with a question that you were not able to answer? It required the deep counsels of God, and you try to come up with some type of answer. You know what people do? A lot of people try and say, that Job's problem was that he feared and he was making sacrifices for his kids on a regular basis. This is not true at all. It wasn't, Job's problem was not caused by fear at all. Job was perfect and upright before God. If he was full of fear, surely God wouldn't have told that to Satan. <laughs> Job's problem was that he didn't have a problem. That's what the whole book's point is. This book is trying to say, here's a perfect man and bad things are happening to him. And he's wondering why. That's why God put it in there, because bad things may happen to you, and you may not know why they happen to you. And you want an answer. Right? Okay, we're going to get there in just a second. So, it's important to look at the big trip picture. And I was really getting to what I'm supposed to see. Okay, this is the big picture now. Proverbs is simply this. These are things that are proverbial statements that present the normal, rational order of life. God has designed this world that if you do A, you're going to get B. If you do B, you're going to get A. If you don't do B, you're not going to get A. Okay, it makes sense. If a man works hard, he's going to get wealth. If a man sleeps in until 11 o'clock in the morning every day and plays video games and doesn't go to work, what's going to happen to him? Poor. There you go. He's going to be poor. Going to get, he doesn't go to the gym, he's going to get heavy. If he eats sugar pops every day and popsicles and, and Taco Bell, what's going to happen to him? Cause and effect. Cause and that's it. Cause and effect. Okay? So these are things. But here's the thing. These are things that are not always true. They're things that are mostly true. Uh, mostly true. Normally true. And we're going to see the exception in just a second. Because I will tell you, there are some people that do eat Taco Bell every day and they don't get fat. <laughs> there are some people that don't do nothing and they get all this money. But Proverbs says, I know what Proverbs said, but wait a second. Is it possible that these are not things that are always true? And God gave you exceptions. You know what the first exception is? The book of Job. So you see, you have Proverbs... That is right here. Things that are mostly true. But what about when tragedy strikes? Well, you'll see that Proverbs demonstrates that often events in life that humans cannot grasp or understand happen. And it contradicts what's happening in Proverbs. So you know what you have now? You have the book of Job. And the book of Job uh, was written... To help you understand that not everything in life can be rationalized. When someone asks me, why do babies die? I don't, I don't, if I was training a minister, I would say, don't even take that question. If you take that question, I will be very disappointed that you try to give an answer because you don't know. There's no way you can tell me. Now, I mean, if 
mom was feeding it poison or was neglected or something that was obvious. But if the baby, I've I've done hospital visits for kids. There's you go down. If you want to do hospital visits? Go down and uh, the children's hospital. And I remember one time I was seeing a nine-year-old kid that had legions all over his spine. Now I believe Satan is sin, sickness, and disease. But you can't say that the kid did anything wrong. You know, he played the wrong video game. I mean, if God or the Holy Spirit reveals this to you, okay. But but trying to come up with an answer is very difficult. And there are some things in life you're not going to be able to understand. That's why the book of Job was written. Now, I know the Bible teaches the curse doesn't come without a cause. That is true, but you don't always know the cause. Okay? And exception number two to Proverbs. So we have the first exception that we don't always understand everything. But Proverbs gives you this wisdom for living. But there is another problem. And that problem is simply that wisdom by itself does not give to you the meaning of life. You could go read every book in the library if you would like. I was looking at different libraries all across the world. And I could not believe the ones I was seeing at the Sorbonne in Paris and the uh, University of New York City and these majestic libraries that... If you've never been to an amazing library, go down to the University of Michigan Library at the law school. It's quite awesome. But you could read every book and still not know what the meaning of life is. And so that's the second exception to Proverbs. Wisdom is not enough. So you know what God says? That's true. So now you have Ecclesiastes to let you know this. There's another exception to Proverbs. And, of course, there's another exception to wisdom, and that is that you can gain all the wisdom you want, but you don't have the ability to relate to people because people are not just info drops. They're emotional people that require an emotional, sometimes even irrationality to relate to that person. So you want to flunk a date. You want to go on a date and have a bad date. Go in there and try and be intellectual. You're never going to fall in love that way, right? Right? This lovely couple. So you know what God says? There's got to be... Song of Songs to let you know that wisdom is not enough to relate to somebody on an emotional human level. See how this all works together? So now I think that God has given us through Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Solomon a big picture to know that there is an ordered universe, but we don't understand everything. And no matter how much wisdom we get, unless it's special revelation from the Holy Ghost, there are some things we are not going to be able to understand. And, and not understanding those things... We also need to understand that unless we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, unless we have a relationship with God, we're not going to understand the meaning of life. No wisdom can give us that. Uh, you know, I was uh, looking at some uh, a lecture one time teaching, and I wanted to say, okay, so what does all this matter now? So you gave us this information, what you believe about life, but you still have no meaning to it. And then you see that you have Song of Songs, which means that yeah, sometimes you just have to put the wisdom down for a minute and just be human, right? Okay. Is this good so far? You guys enjoying it? Okay. We got a few more minutes. Um, let me talk about the Proverbs quickly, and then we're going to get into our exercise tonight. Um, number one, let me say, let me back this up, because I made a, a trite statement, and I want to make sure that I, 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 I back up what I say. Individual proverbs reflect general nuggets of wisdom, but not universal truths. Like I said before, they're not they're normative, but not guaranteed. For instance, lazy people are soon poor, hard workers get rich, Proverbs 10.4. Right? I said that. But look what it says in Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, verse 11. I have observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. 
The wives sometimes go hungry and skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It's all decided by chance, being at the right place at the right time. How do we rectify this? You're saying this is about chance. How many have heard the statement? It's not what you know, it's who you know. And you see some people that are in positions, you're like, how did they get there? I got to know this, I know that. Well, they knew the right people. But, but Proverbs says I work hard. Well, what, let me ask you this. I know people that wake up every day, 5 o'clock in the morning, they go down to the Ford plant, they work hard every day putting cars together, take eating a bologna sandwich a half hour, and then they work all the way to 4.30, they come home, and they work their tails off. They make 30000 a year, 20000 a year. Then I know people that sit at home and wake up at 12, know of people, and uh, they go on to the e-commerce, e-trade.com, and they hit a button, and they watch a stock, go look at their favorite TV show, come back, hit another button, and they made 10 k that day. Well, who's worked the hardest? I don't think it's the guy at e-trade. Now, I commend him on his intelligence. That's not the case. So we see that these are things that are normally true. But I can tell you this. If you do work hard, you keep your hand to the plow, you will succeed. I think that anybody knows that working hard is important to work hard, right? So we can know that, yes, chances are if I work hard, I'm going to succeed, right? I think that's what the Proverbs is saying to us. Okay, so Proverbs tend to be inexact statements pointing to the truth in figurative ways. Let me give you an example. Commit your ways, to, your ways to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Now, this is not an exact statement. It's inexact. Because what if you are about to inv- engage yourself in an ill-advised marriage? Has anyone ever saw two people that have been told repeatedly, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and they do it, and then they get divorced? You said, well, I committed my plans to the Lord. Yeah, but God wasn't talking about your plans. It was generally speaking. If you commit well-advised wise plans to God and you make a decision say God I commit myself to you bless this and God tells you to go forward and the spirit of God tells you to do it then you can expect it to succeed if God tells you don't do this ministry don't do it. the reason I'm having this Bible study is because I, I know the Lord told me to do it the reason I opening a church is because God told me to do it so I can trust it's going to succeed. I can trust that our building fund, we have to raise thousands and thousands of dollars for our building fund. I can trust that we have to raise uh, and, and believe God for all the things we have to believe. It's going to come to pass because I spent time fasting praying about it. But if you just run into something, well, you can't expect to succeed and then put it on this verse. Proverbs are not legal guarantees from God. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, Proverbs 22, 26 to 27 says, Don't agree to guarantee another person's debt. Or put up security for someone else. If you can't pay it, even your bed will be snatched from under you. Well, if you really want to take this for all it's worth, that means that if you can't loan money to people. So you really wouldn't be able to get a mortgage from a person because that person giving you that mortgage, which is a guaranteed debt, would not be able to do it from this. biblically incorrect. Well, that's not really what it's saying here. I th- this is what it's saying is that if... You loan somebody money and you can't back up their debt, it's going to be very painful for you. That's really what it's saying. It's cautious. It's, you know, it's cautioning you. Be careful, right? Um, let's see here. Are you enjoying this? Okay, watch this. <laughs> if you read a proverb in isolation, uh, you're going to get in trouble. Watch this. 
Proverbs 21, 22, The wise conquer the city of the strong and, and level the fortress in which they trust. So look what it says. The wise conquer the city of the strong and level the fortress in which they trust. Well, so you might, well, what's the mean to be wise? I gotta go conquer a city now. What is this, what is this saying? That if you're wise, you're gonna go conquer a city? This is not what it's saying. It's saying that uh, wisdom can be as strong as military might. You conquer a city, you're wise. Well, you just, wisdom is like military might. And there's some people that have wisdom that is very, very powerful, very, very strong. Okay, you get what I'm saying? Um, let's see here. Um, we talked about the book of Job. We talked about... Let me talk to you a little bit about uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, let me say, I got 15 minutes. I'll do Job real quick. I'll do Ecclesiastes. We're going to song songs quickly. Job is a book that deals with suffering, and it's very easy to relate to. How many here have been through some degree of suffering? All right, been through some suffering. God, why me? Why this? Why has this happened? And I'm not one of these bandwagon people that believe that um, suffering is good and everybody needs to suffer a little bit and God make me suffer. Is in no thing in the Bible are we told to ask God for suffering. I'm not one of these Calvinists that believe in all that kind of stuff. What I do believe, though, is that this life has suffering involved in it. It's inescapable. I believe that your prayers and um, crying out to God He'll hear you, and I believe in faith and power of healing and so on and so forth, and nothing that Jesus died for, um, the enemy can put on you. I believe these things to be true. But at the same time, the New Testament talks about suffering for the cause of Christ. I know a lot of believers that um, get persecuted because they name the name of Christ. Look at Tim Tebow. He's a popular example because he's recent. I mean, he starts talking about Jesus, and everyone makes fun of him and mocks him. So you're going to see, I'm going to talk about it Friday night a little bit on Jeremiah's part. It's going to be powerful Friday night, so I want you to come. I have a powerful message, and if you can make it, come out. Um, but Job really wants to kind of come up with, why is all this happening to me? And this is a very sharp contrast to what's going on in Proverbs, because in Proverbs, you see this luxurious life that is... Everything is together and do these things and you're going to prosper. And so you could have taken the road of Proverbs and now you're prospering, you're succeeding. But everything comes to halt in Job and it smacks right into Job. And now you see a guy who's done everything right and now he's suffering, right? And so you see that Job's afflicted and Job's friends try to ration for an answer. And, and God answers Job's accusations and Job's restored. But you've got to ask yourself some questions. And one thing we've talked about is taking the road of the biblical narrative. What's going on in Job? And how do we rightfully translate? Now, we're not going to go through the whole verse by verse, but I want to talk to you a little bit about, first of all, finding the meaning, the overall meaning of Job. First thing that you do is you ask yourself when you read the book of Job, what does this mean to the biblical audience, right? When you're reading this, discovering it before you put your own ideas into it, what did this mean to the people at the time? And so, you know, as I said before, it's important that you read the whole book of Job before you start pulling statements out of it. Um, and what you'll find out about Job is that Job really got in God's face a lot and accused God of things. 
Jeremiah did the same thing. Jeremiah accused God of a lot of things. You know what a lot of times God does? God understands that you're but human. And many times when you're upset with God, God just takes it on the chin. Allows you to talk to him. As long as you're humble and meaningful from the heart, God appreciates the way that you're talking to him. And you'll see this in Job. And one thing that uh, when you're deciphering what a book is talking about, you wonder, um, what was the difference between Job's time and my time? And when I told you about Old Testament, is when you're reading Old Testament, you always keep in, in mind that they're under a different covenant. We're under a new covenant, and they're under an old covenant. But in the book of Job, you'll see the idea of covenant and, and being part of the law of Moses, uh, under Moses' covenant, and now being under the New Testament covenant. Really, he's not playing much of a difference in that book, because it's, it's not covenantal. This is just something that's happening to a man. You'll see that this, this difference is not that different than ours, our life right now. There's not that much of a difference. I mean, people today, they still want a rational explanation for all the terrible things that are happening. And Job didn't know the origin of his trouble, which was Satan, but he didn't know that. And we don't know the origin of our trouble a lot of times. You ever wonder, why? where's all this trouble coming from? Have I done something wrong? All right? And um, then you ask yourself, what are the principles in this text? When you look at the book of Job, what is the theological principle, isn't it? That's step number three. And you'll find that God is sovereign. You know, we're not. God knows all. We know little. God is always just, but he does not disclose explanations to us. God expresses a trust his character and his sovereignty when unexplained tragedy strikes. I know of people today that have had tragedy in their lives. Christians, word of faith, Bible-believing, Scripture confessions, Christians. I was talking to somebody two weeks ago, and they said to me, I don't understand. I mean, I go to church, we confess, we believe, we pray for healing, but sometimes things don't happen. You're a healing minister. You've seen miracles, signs, and wonders. What's the answer? My answer is this. I don't know. I pray for the sick because Jesus told me to. I see healings because Jesus said I would. I cast out devils because it's possible. But at the same time, I don't know the answer to everything, and I don't pretend to know. That's arrogance. You'll see in the book of Job, Job never got his answer. God just helped him and turned it around for him. But he never got an answer. And guess what? He may never get an answer. You have to be careful. You have to be uh, okay with that sometimes. Don't all, and at the same time, don't blame it all on yourself. And this is, of course, in the New Testament. Jesus says, "Those who live in Christ will suffer persecution." And you'll see that suffering for the sake of Christ is normative to the believer's experience. So that's pretty much the Book of Job. That basically we have a book here that's teaching us about suffering. Um, let's skip Ecclesiastes. Let's talk about the Song of Songs real quick. You guys ready for your activity for tonight? Ready for this? Ready to just dive in real quick? Okay. Someone say amen. Is anyone getting anything out of this? Or am I just up here blowing a lot of hot air and just making no sense at all? Okay. Good. Good. The book of... Good. I want people that are sharp. When people say, what, what who's been teaching you? I want them to say, light of today. It's teaching us stuff. Because I have seen too many Christians that just don't think. They just, it's like, oh, they're not thinking. And, um, and I, like I said before, I thought about not having this Bible study, but I felt like it's my responsibility, and that's from God. God put that in me, so we're going to continue with it. Um, and I know it's not popular because today, a lot of times, you want to be able to call into the 800 number on television and have the minister just say he's going to turn it around for you, but that's not how it works a lot of times, right? Okay. Um, Song of Songs is one of the most interesting books in the whole Bible because it's very, very uh, vague. 
It's a book that we don't know much about. We believe that they are a collection of, if I'm okay with saying this, if you're okay with me saying this, erotic poems, uh, songs that was from who we think Solomon was writing these, put together, and these became a love song and a ballad about human romance that was written in the ancient Near Eastern style of poetry. And it was more than likely sung at weddings. The whole thing is a whole song. It's a song. So it kind of helps you out in the title. When you're reading this, you're reading a song. You're reading lyrics. You know, when you read your lyrics to your favorite song, do you hear the song in your head when you're reading them? Yeah, you can't just read. You know, if I said, now watch this. 90s babies are going to understand this. This is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. Now, you could not help but hear that music in your head. As a matter of fact, when you wake up tomorrow and that song's going through your head, you can blame me. Uh, pull up to a house about seven or eight, and I said to the cab, you're home, smell you later. Looked at my king. Okay, you guys, that song, right? This is a song. So we take the lyrics out, you hear the music. Well, guess what? These are lyrics to a song. There should be some music behind this. All right, so we get the idea right now. But this was a song that if it was being sung, there should be no kids there because they're going to see that this is extremely explicit, X-rated, well, I wouldn't say X-rated, probably more R-rated. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe on the borderline X-rated stuff here. And the only reason that you are not able to understand that, I'm going to show you, is because if uh, you look at, can you grab me some, uh, Brett, can you please grab me some um, tissues in the back? When you look at, this is us right here. This is them, Song of Songs, over here. And you're watching this happen. The river of difference is wide. And what I mean by that is that you can't tell what they're doing because right here you have culture, you have history, you have language, all these problems that are keeping you as of putting these lenses on you that are blinding you. You really don't see what's going on because you have all these things that are in the way. So what our responsibility to do is we have to begin to answer culture, we have to begin to answer history, we have to begin to answer language so that we can begin to see through it and find out what is actually going on in this scripture, this text. And when I show you in just a second what's going on, you're going to say, wow, that's what he meant? You know, what if, uh, what if Solomon... What if Solomon, uh, you know, was put on some clothes and came to, you know, was walking around New York City one day. No one knew it was Solomon, and no one knew that he was with the Shulamite woman. And um, he walked past a couple and, and, and that was in love, and he, and he heard the man say to the woman, How are you doing, honey buns? <laughs> they would not know what you're talking about. As a married couple, so we can keep it pure tonight. But any other American would say, well, he's referring to that he likes her rear end. And if they're married, there's nothing wrong with that. He might even touch it. What's wrong with that? They're married. But Solomon's like, what are they talking about? I don't know what they're talking about. Well, this is exactly what's going on, except it's the reverse. We don't know what they're talking about. Okay? So, what I want to talk about tonight is that. Song of Songs is a wisdom book that 
expresses that um, a few things. Number one, we can gain from this book is that you see heterosexual love in this book. You don't see two men and two women. And so Israel, according to God's revelation, saw that heterosexual marriage was the proper context for sexual activity. And we're going to see that this was not just any love, that this was a two couple. You're going to find out this couple is, is technically not married. They're on their way to marriage. They're talking about what it's going to be like when they're married. All right, so I'm not, I, of course, I believe sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage only. But I do think that, and I would counsel couples, that when you're engaged, you need to begin to think sexually about each other. Don't wait till the wedding night for it to be a surprise, you know. And all of a sudden, well, what do we do? Well, you know, you should begin to think about, if you, I, I one time answered a question, and I said, in school, I was teaching an ethics class uh, back at North Central where I went to, and I said, if you were engaged to somebody, and you couldn't have sex with them when you got married, you had to live a celibate marriage, would you get married? And some people said they wouldn't. I said, you're lying. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You would be on to the next person. Well, if you really love her, if you really loved her, you can't really love your spouse until you're intimate with them. I think the married couples in here probably would agree with that statement. The married couples, let me know when I get off and I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, I also suggest godly choices. All right, so the value of song of songs is concerned about showing people how to respond faithfully to the attractiveness, to the attractiveness of another person. It's not about self-indulgence. It's about you will find that these two people we're about to see in a second were not really indulged themselves. The woman wasn't saying to the man, you know, the man didn't say to the woman, your neck is like the fortress of David. And the woman didn't say, oh, I know. It's just so beautiful, isn't it? Or the woman didn't say to the man, your nose is like the tower of David and the tower of Lebanon. The man didn't say, oh, yeah, I know, I know. It was more an exchange. You're this. Well, you're this. No, you're this. You're this. So what we're going to find out is that this book is completely irrational. And the problem was that beginning in the 13th century, that when this book began to get, the 16th century, when prior to the Reformation, most of the translating was done by unmarried priests and monks. Someone say, boo. What do you think the problem with that is? You've got a monk who has taken the vow to celibacy and said he's going to suffer by not allowing sexual intimacy in his life. And guess what he starts doing? Can't relate to it. So you know what he says? This book ain't about sex. God forbid it be about sex. You know what this book is about? It's about Christ and the church. I've always found it very offensive to read into that about Christ and the church because I think it is an abuse of God's love to consider it a sexual erotic love. This is very erotic language. And I think that if you use allegory erotic about the Lord, it's, it's, it's improper. I've heard people talking about, well, I had a vision that the Lord came in and I hugged and caressed. Don't even talk to me. I won't even listen to you. Leave. You're crazy. You're stupid. Don't even say that to me. That's Jesus. Jesus is a man who is not married. He is the God-man. wasn't married upon the earth. He didn't treat women that way. And he's not going to treat you that way. He's God. That it, the, 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 it breaks down. I'm sorry to even say that in here. Um, but it needs to be said and addressed. Don't talk about the Lord that way like he's some type of lover. Thanks, Brett. So don't make Song of Songs allegorical. This is not prophetic about Christ. It's, you can try and draw themes, but not what the writer had in mind. It's not prophetic in that sense. It's just not. I don't think these couples that were in love were thinking that way when they wrote it. Um, so let's 
get into breaking it down with the half hour that we have left. You guys want to? You guys want to break this down a little bit and find out some interesting things? You guys ready for this? I mean, you may. It's me. Oh, I might leave this and go on date, dating. Go and join a dating website and hurry up and get married now. <laughs> it's okay though. You don't go on get married with it. I think that's that, that that couples should find a good translation. Couples, are you listening? I'm, I'm looking straight forward. Find a good and, and read this to each other. Get involved. I'm, and I hope the married couples listen to what I'm saying. Because this will be one of the best studies you can do as married people. Yeah, I'm going to show you how to do it. Yeah, you give me points for helping your marriage. Amen. <laughs> First thing you need to do is you need to decide what book you're studying. This is We're basically going to study Song of Songs, but I'm going to show you the technique. You can use it in any book. Okay? The technique is the book background method of Bible study. This is basically finding out what a book's all about. Before you even get into the book, let's just take this book apart. Find out everything we can find out about it. Okay. Number one, choose the book that you're studying. Song of Songs. All right. Are we locked and loaded? Are we engaged? Okay. Number two, you got to come up with some references because you cannot do this study based upon your own knowledge and understanding. You're going to need someone else's help. So if you want to know some things to use, you find ways to get atlases, handbooks, study Bibles. If you got five hundred dollars laying around. You can get Logo 6, which is the best Bible software program out there. You'll get it, and you won't even know how to use it. That's how cool it is. You can't beat Logo 6. All right. I don't have it, actually. I've been trying not to get it. Logo 6 is dope, though. Um, I think I'm going to have to get it this semester for my class, though. Anyway, it's got so much you can spend a lifetime on there and still not. Jesus doesn't even know how to use it. All right. Um, commentaries, Bible encyclopedias, lexicons, historical writings, anything that will supplement this. Anything. You can go online and you can get Bible works or you can just Google stuff. I mean, don't read people's blogs. Be careful about that. Try and, you know, you can go on, uh, there's a website, Bible Tools, I think it is, and it can give you James, the, the, the James Faustin's commentary. You can, there's certain sites that will give you verse-by-verse -verse commentaries. It's free. So just try and find ways to get commentaries. This will help you. Okay, so you need commentaries. Okay. Now that you have your tools, the first thing that you want to do is you want to begin, I'm going to put all these steps into one. How about we do that? Step number three, write this down if you're taking notes, we're going to, we're going to do it all at once. In, obtain insights from geography. So you take the text you're studying or the book that you're studying, and first of all you want to find out things about the geography. Now, individually these things may be clues, but when you put it all together you get the big picture. Okay? Obtain insights from geography. Find out about the geography of Palestine, Israel. Things in the geography would be cities and types of land, major mountains, hills, landmarks, and go through the passage of study and highlight things that stick out, things that you don't understand about. Shulamite. What is a Shulamite? You know, these are things you don't know. Okay? Then you get insights from history. History would be like, uh, you know, um, what's going on, the chronology. You know, the... Was there wars going on at this time? Who was the king? Uh, you can ask yourself, uh, maybe you can find out what else was going on. So, you know, when Jesus was walking around in Judea, there wasn't the only thing going on on the earth at that time. You know, people were living in the Orient. There's people living in Africa. There might have been people living in the United States. I don't know. There's people living in England and Spain. What was going on in Spain when Jesus was walking the earth? Don't you think that would be interesting to find out? You know, if I did a study on the fullness of time, this is so powerful. 
when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made in the law, that we might receive. The fullness of time is referring to a special instance. Jesus didn't come during the time where the Amorite kings were fighting against Israel, did He? Jesus didn't come when there was hardly any way to travel. Jesus came after the Romans had built the roads. Jesus came after Hellenism, which means that the Greeks had made everyone have one language. And then the, the Romans built the road, and guess what? It became easy for the gospel story to be told. If it hadn't been, it might have been lost. Jesus, go into all the worlds. How is that possible? Guess what? There was roads to go on, and there was a language to tell people about, and it was Greek, which they probably all spoke it. And though we don't have proof, it's believed by most that Jesus understood and probably spoke Greek. At least Paul did. We know for a fact Paul did. So, you see the fullness of time, see how God has strategy. So, what else is going on? So, understand uh, insights from history, and then you want to discover insights from culture. This means the kind of music, the kind of weapons, the kind of architecture, ceremonies. And then you want to discover insights from the, polit the political environment at the time. Now, we're going to do all this at once. Those are different six steps, but you can do it all at once if you want. Let's go to Song of Solomon. You guys ready for this? You know, I wasn't even going to do this tonight, this uh, exercise, but I thought it was too good not to do. Are you ready? Someone say, I'm ready. All right. You know, I'm thinking about writing a book on all this stuff. Should I do it if I made it interesting? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do it. And the time you have to buy it. I'll give it to you. <laughs> okay, let's start. Um, Song of Songs, chapter 1. Anyone enjoying this? Are we enjoying this? Okay, song of song number one. Oh, here we go. Here we go. This is the solemn this is Solomon's song of songs, more wonderful than any other. Young woman, kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. Now I couldn't take out everything. I just picked out things that are gonna open this up for us, right? And we could look at everything. And you know what? I really hope no one gets offended tonight. We're just breaking down the Bible. This is the word of God, okay? This is going to be PG-13. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne. Ah, oh, your name is like its spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. <laughs> Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. Young woman of Jerusalem says, How happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. So the women of Jerusalem are saying this, the king. And then the young woman says, How right they are to adore you. Now look what she says here. I am dark but beautiful. O women of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedar. And you get that? Does anybody get that? No, nobody got that. Because no one knows what the tents of Kedar are. What does she mean? I'm as dark as the tents of Gadar. Well, I think we should stop. Put the car in park for a second. Put it in neutral. Maybe we can find a little something out about the tents of Kadar. Can we do that tonight? Okay, well, let me tell you. I did all the research for you. Kadar was the name of one of the 12 sons of Ishmael. And it was he who helped originate the Arab people. They had a dwelling in the northern part of the Arabian desert. And you'll discover that they were nomadic, and the Bible talks about them in other places. I didn't write the verse down, but you'll see that they were they, they got scared when they found out that the king, I think it was Babylon, was going to destroy them. But they were nomadic. Does that tell you anything? If they were nomadic, what did they dwell in? 
tense. Anybody could do a Google search right now and you could find out, you can Google tents of Kadar and you'll find out that they're very large tents. They probably were like, maybe pitched, they were probably the size of this room. And they were made out of camel's hair and they were dyed black. So these are black tents. And if you saw what a tent of Kadar looked like, I actually wanted to see what one looked like, so I Googled and I looked up a picture. It's a gigantic, huge, black tent that when it's in the sun, it's very shiny and sleek and smooth looking because it's camel's hair. So now that you have that, what's he saying about this woman? What's the woman saying about herself? She's dark-skinned. Not that she's African, but she's as dark as a tent of Kadar. And they're pretty dark. They're probably as dark as that door right there. So she probably was laying in the sun at least. Right? Dark-skinned woman. Look what she says here. I'm dark as the tents of Kadar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents, which were the same thing. Don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin. Okay, so now we know why she's dark. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards. So I couldn't care for myself. I'm going to go down real quick. Tell me, my love, where are you leading your flock today? Where will you rest your sheep at noon? For why should I wander like a prostitute among your friends and their flocks? Then this is the young man's response. If you don't know, O most beautiful woman, follow the trail of my flock, and graze your young goats by the shepherd's tents. You are as exciting, my darling, and as a, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. How lovely are your cheeks, your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck, enhanced by a string of jewels. We will make for your earrings of gold and beads of silver. The king is lying on his... Now look, now, now, now the woman says, the woman steps in, she says this. The king is lying on his couch, enchanted by the fragrance of my perfume. My lover is like a satchet of myrrh lying between my breasts. He is like a bouquet of sweet henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Now who got that? You said, well, he's like a sweet, a bouquet of sweet henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Yeah, that's great. What does that even mean? Well, well, we probably need to know something about Engedi, right? That maybe it has vineyards. Well, it, this is what it says. Engedi means spring. And it was an oasis on the west coast of the Dead Sea. It had luxurious vegetation because under it, it had warm springs. It was very fertile. And here grew a plant named Alhenna, which was very, very odiferous. And if you did not trim the plant, it would grow 10 or 12 feet high and put out little flowers, which gave out a very charming scent. So now you see that she's saying, this guy smells pretty good. Smells good. Now let's stop real quick. What's the point am I trying to make here? Well, you know, at singles conferences, which I really hesitate to do them, and I've been asked to do them, and I don't like it. Because what a lot of times people want to hear is that if you're going to go out there and get a person to like you, that you're going to have to pray in the Holy Ghost and pray in the Spirit and do all this stuff. And there is part of it that's true. But another part of it means looking and smelling good and being appealing to somebody. I mean, this book here is not talking much about being spiritual, is it? It's 
book is talking about being pleasant looking, appealing to the irrational side of a person. Um, I would encourage young people that, though we're not like the world, that there are basic things we can do, like dress nice if you have the means, go buy, invest in a 60 or $70 bottle of cologne. Maybe if you can afford it, don't just buy men, don't just buy Brute or Canoe or Dracker Nor. Maybe buy some Chanel Blue, right? <laughs> or some Creed or whatever you like. Women, you know, put down the, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know what they wear, but something that's more, if you can afford it, just put in something nice. If you like a guy, you better just be smelling good, right? Okay. Is this, are you guys getting what I'm doing here? Let's not read all of this. Let's skip now. Let's go on to chapter two. The young woman says, I am the spring crocus blooming on the Sharon Plain, the lily of the valley. Well, she says, I'm the crocus blooming on the Sharon Plain. This woman is saying this about herself. What's interesting, you'll see, is that a woman is complimenting her own body. That she has enough confidence in herself to make this kind of statement about herself. But I think that the reason she's saying this statement is because the man has made her feel that way. Right? Do you know women? It's important how a man makes you feel. Am I right? Some of the greatest advice I ever received that, that I try and teach guys younger than me, it's about making a woman feel good about themselves. I mean, where the women disagree with me that it's important for, when you guys got married, it's important for the man to make you feel good about yourself, right? Better not stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, I, I agree. Um, well, the crocus blooming on the Sharon Plain is a plain between Joppa and Mark Carmel, but you don't care because you don't know where it's at. But it's known for its fertility and beauty. Actually, this is talking about a rose that was white. And it was, um, they said, uh, one of the historians, Pliny, said at that time, there was no better rose in all of Palestine. This was the nicest place to find roses, and it was of the most wonderful, wonderful smell. So now we see here that she's talking about saying this, this smell, I smell wonderful. What would, what would we say about, I mean, how would we, if it was today, let's say this was a 21st century story, would she say that I'm the spring crocus blooming in the Sharon Plain? I don't think she would say that. What do you think she would say about herself? She want to say she smells good. I smell as sweet as walking past Cinnabon when you're at the 12 Oaks Mall. <laughs> oh, yeah, now everybody's like, really? Well, I'm going to go past that bedroom and find out, oh, baby, I smell like Cinnabon, man. You walk into the house, the house smells like Cinnabon in here. Man, I'm not leaving. Keep me all night. Right? Yeah, you all know that smell. You know, you can't, I, I smell that, I'm like, I don't no, I'm just gonna have to get bigger, my stomach. Okay. So you see what's going on here. This is this is wow. You know what this is? Have you ever seen people in in public? You just oh, you just oh, you know, baby. When I look into your eyes, you blah, 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 and you're just like, go get a room, go get a room, get a room. So this is what's going on here. Mush talk. You know, married couples. If people heard the way you talk to each other. In private, you'd be devastated. Oh, I can't believe he read that text message. You know, you know how you can tell if someone's been putting mushy text messages. They don't let you when they show you a picture on their phone. This is what they do. They get their phone out. You know, and they got mushy text messages. They say, "Let me see that picture." They go, "You see it?" <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't take my phone from me now. And then, you see the picture? You see the picture? Okay, you see the picture. Well, I can't let you see the phone, but you can see the picture. They got something to hide. You know what I mean? Hopefully, it ain't that bad. But 
they don't want you to see the mushy talk. You know where they you start scrolling through the pictures. I didn't tell you you can scroll through the pictures. Just look at the picture I showed you. Don't scroll through all those pictures. Right? <laughs> okay. Let's go on. Let's study a little more. Let's go to chapter 3. Actually, you know what? No, 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 no. Let's go to verse 16 and 17 here. The young woman. Now, this is going to be funny. Chapter 3, verse 16. They're talking cute to each other. They're talking sexual, obviously. Talking about each other's bodies. Chapter 3, verse 16. Look what she says. Uh, excuse me. I, I mean 2, verse 16. What chapter are we in? 2, verse 16. My lover is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, return to me, my love, like a gazelle or a young stag on the rugged mountains. Well, the question is, where did he go? Where did he at? He's right there. You know what she's talking about? When he goes to work, she misses him. Aww. He goes out the door. I gotta go to work, baby. Gets out of bed. Oh, baby, but I know you got to go and work all day long. But return to me like a young stag on the rugged mountain like a gazelle. What? <laughs> okay, baby. You know what that would mean? That would mean like, um, you know, have you guys, uh, Brett's a hunter. I don't know if Caleb's a hunter. But if you've ever seen deer or gazelle, I was driving the other day and uh, a deer jumped right in front of me and just doop, 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 just hopped over the road and just hopped over the fence. Saw it, watched the white-tailed deer, just doop, doop. Graceful, majestic, quick, fast. You know what she's saying? When you go to work, think of me and come on home and just gracefully come on. Just come home quickly, baby, because I can't miss you. I got something cooking in the oven. You know, a lot of couples are like, you know, go to work and, and go out with your friends afterwards, right? <laughs> Go to work and, and and maybe they got some extra overtime for you. If you you know what? Pick up some overtime. Don't come home to this house. It's a couple that's in love. Come to me. Come home. Oh, what is something quick and fast today? Come home, you know, quickly like lightning. Just hurry up and come home, baby, because I can't I can't go a day without you. Obviously, these are people that are still in the honeymoon, right? Okay. So when, when married couples tell your husbands when they go home, come home to me like a gazelle. <laughs> I don't know. I can't think. My brain's not quick enough to, to think of something 21st century right now of what that would be like saying. Okay. Come home like a Ferrari, dashing, going quickly, flashing through cars. Hurry up, baby, with the, like a convertible. Okay. Song of Song, chapter 3, verse number 9. King, this is the young women of Jerusalem. Now, you got to understand who's talking. This is not his lover talking. Mm -mm. This is not even him talking. This is the young women. Mm, all the jealous women, but they weren't jealous. They weren't haters. They were actually admirers of the fact that uh, Solomon liked their friend. This is all her best friends talking, you know, bridesmaids talking here. Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? Look! It's Solomon's carriage, surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. What, what, whose dream as a woman is not to have this happen to them, right? They are skilled swordsmen, experienced warriors. Each wears a sword on his thigh, ready to defend the king against an attack in the night. You know what this is saying? Solomon is a man's man. He's got boys. He's got friends. You know what every woman wants? A man that commands men, right? 
King Solomon's carriage is built of the imported wood from Lebanon. Wouldn't it be something if someone pulled up in a Bentley and say, Oh man, his car was like the imported wood from Lebanon. It was hot. <laughs> you say, what? Dog, his car, man, he pulled up. I was like, man, I almost fell over his car. It was like the imported wood from Lebanon. People were like, go take him to the site ward. Floor number four, please. Put him in Bosford. Lock him up. What's he saying right here? He's saying his car was handcrafted and hand-designed in Italy at the Ferrari factory. I'm going to use Ferrari twice now, okay? All right. Right? You know what this is? You know what this is? Solomon's carriage is? You know what Solomon's carriage is? This is historic. When a man was getting engaged to a woman and they were going to marry, the woman would go from her father's house to the man's house. And this was a ceremonial procession. And the man would come in the carriage and he would be with his best friend, his best man. And they would go pick the woman up and they would take the woman back to his house where the man would lay with her after marriage. Can you imagine if the women saw him coming up in a hoopty? <laughs> King pulled up his car, just can, his carriage can barely get there. There's one horse with one leg, just walking like this, you know. There's another horse, it just looks like it should be shot. It should have been shot. It got a big old, you know, hanging growth on it, teeth knocked out of its face, and the whole inside stinks and smells. There's hay everywhere, the horse is doodling all over the place. You know what I mean? This is terrible. Right? King Solomon says, you know what? I'm going to have the very best. You know what? Go get me some wood from Lebanon. You'll find out that there was the Lebanon wood. Actually, the temple in the book of Song of Songs is called Lebanon. Why is it called Lebanon? Because it was made from the choicest cedars of Lebanon. And what he was saying is take the finest wood, the same wood that was used in the temple, and make the carriage out of it. Because this is what she deserves, the very best. She's holy. And they said, oh my God, he went all out. He went all out. One of my friends told me that when you get married, you go all out. Spare no expense because you, you should only have to do that one time in your life. <laughs> Plan on getting married twice. You may want to think about not going all out. No, I'm just teasing. Okay, you guys getting something out of this now. How many how, you guys make you want to go home and study? Okay, where are we at? Song of Songs 4. We got a few minutes left. Let me see here. Mm, we can't, okay, your hair falls in waves, like a flock of goats winding down from the slopes of Gilead. Oh, no, this sounds like something he gets smack for. <laughs> Caleb says to his wife, baby, your hair is like a flock of goats, like the Mount of Gilead. What you saying about my hair is like a flock of goats? <laughs> Who are you calling my hair like a flock of goats? This is not a good pickup line. Don't use these pickup lines. Just, yeah, please don't. <laughs> Baby, yeah. Man, I went out on this date. How was she? Yeah, her hair was like a flock of goats, man. Flock of goats winding out from the slopes of Gilead. You'll find that the slopes of Gilead were mountains. And those mountains had goats that were fed. And it was a romantic place because it was a mountain. And the goats would sit there and graze. And when the sun would go up and when the sun would go down, the sun glistening on their smooth backs made it a beautiful sight. He wasn't calling him a goat. He was saying that your hair is like a soft, beautiful, um, and it was long and smooth and neat, and it glistened. As they're all familiar with that, you know, now it would be like saying, you're like, you'd be like Pantene Bro V. Your hair is silky and smooth, 
like licorice vines and like, uh, you know, like licorice, like Twizzlers when you pull it off. You know, it's just so sweet and smells so good, right? Okay. Then all of a sudden he says, sir, your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David. My neck is as beautiful as what? The Tower of David? All you picture him saying that his neck is like the Tower of Pisa, right? Like a skyscraper, you know what I mean? Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of Pisa. What are you saying? My neck is long? You think it's one of these people that have their necks popped up like this? Boy, that's nothing attractive about a long neck. That doesn't proportion. You know what he's saying? You know what the Tower of David was? Tower of David was something that was built where David's men would go in there and they would hang their gold shields on it and when they won wars they would take the spoils from those wars which were usually gold and silver and rubies and also maybe gold and pearls and all sorts of gems and stones and they would take those and they would decorate the tower with them. So what is he saying? Your neck has jewelry on it. As he says in the next sentence, jeweled with the shield of a thousand heroes. Oh, so now we get it. Your neck has jewelry all over it. So you can get a lot of application out of this. I mean, this is their wedding, honeymoon night. She's got jewelry on. She's got the finest. I mean, these guys are going all out. I think it's safe to say that God desires for people that are in love to go all out with their love. Dress up for each other. Wear makeup. Do whatever you guys like to do, right? Okay. You guys kind of getting the point. One more, one more. And it says here, hmm. I'm gonna make you guys listen to this because I had to put all this together. Okay, verse eight, chapter seven, verse number four. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools in Hespon by the gate of Bath Rabbim. All he's saying is simply. That um, you'll discover that the pools in Hespon refer to a very beautiful, delightful fish pool in the former city of the Ammonite king. The waters were clear and unmovable. Were seen at a difference between when it was seen at a distance between trees and groves. It was a beautiful sight. He was just talking about her glistening eyes. You could say he was pretty much saying your eyes are as Beautiful as the sunset on the Hawaiian ocean. Something like that. You know? Say that, what? You know? People, when they fall in love, they become irrational. Everything is beautiful. You know, I love the way he eats his Cheerios in the morning. What do you mean he eats his Cheerios in the morning? I love the way that he just shifts the car from neutral to drive. What do you like most about him? I just love the way she looks when she puts on her glasses. What do you mean? I've had these glasses for five years. I know. She's become irrational. And I do believe that when we want to, um, you see how this is not a kind of calculative wisdom like you see in Proverbs, nor is it this meaningless idea that in the book of Ecclesiastes everything is meaningless, meaningless. Surely this guy has a lot of meaning. It's, it's revolved around his woman. And it's not a doom and gloom thing like Job. So what you see from the wisdom books, if you break them down right, is that the wisdom of God there's many facets to it. Intelligible, but also incomplete to us. And also doesn't give us meaning. We can find that meaning in Christ. At the same time, it's irrational. Amen? Did you enjoy the study tonight? Now that you've heard the light of today, 
connect with us. Go to our website, lightoftoday.org. Write us at P.O. Box 403, Wald Lake, Michigan, 48390. Or tweet Chris Palmer at twitter.com forward slash Chris Palmer. Our podcasts are free and updated regularly, so make sure to share them with a friend and tune in again to The Light of Today with Chris Palmer.